Welcome to the Hollywood vs. Hollywood podcast. I'm your host, H.T., joining you with my co-host, the Bearheart, Michael Herbert. Can I ask you a question, H.T.? Go for it. Are you watching closely? <laughs> Today we are going to talk about twin movies that ask the question, what happens if a European white magician <laughs> in the Victorian era times gets too obsessed with exacting revenge on the man that took his woman? Today, on the Hollywood vs. Hollywood podcast, we're talking about the illusionist versus the prestige. You boiled that down really well. Let's start with the illusionist. Play the trailer, Michael. From the furthest corners of the world, where the dark arts still hold sway, tonight, I give you ice. He's proven to be more than a magician. Promise me you won't do it again. I promise you, you'll enjoy this next show. Do you claim supernatural power? Perhaps I'll make you disappear. I hereby arrest Eisenheim the Illusionist! Michael, what is The Illusionist about? The Illusionist is about a talented magician named Eisenheim who finds himself in a conflict with the crown prince of... Uh, where's Vienna? Austria? Uh, Austria-Hungary, I think. The crown prince of Austria, maybe the Austria Austro-Hungarian Empire? And he must outwit the crown prince and to, to regain the love of his life. But by the way, I think the Eisenheim might have been a real person. And the story, obviously, about him might have been fake. I haven't dove deep into the research of this. This is the kind of content people tune in for. <laughs> it I don't know may if or may not be based on a real person. I think it is. Okay. Okay. Uh, Going with your gut. The movie is based on a short story called Eisenheim the Illusionist. I saw that in the credits. What is the critics and audience scores for The Illusionist? The Illusionist, rated PG-13 with a running time of 1 hour and 50 minutes, has a Rotten Tomato score of 73%, an audience score of 83%, and it's got a 3.3 out of 5 on Letterboxd. Let's get to our second contender, The Prestige. Play the trailer, Michael. What happened? It was the greatest magic trick I've ever seen. I need to know how he does it. The first act is called The Pledge. The magician shows you something ordinary. The second act is called The Turn. The magician makes this ordinary something do something extraordinary. Now you're looking for the secret. But you won't find it. That's why there's a third act called The Prestige. Michael... What is The Prestige about? The Prestige, also rated PG-13 with a running time of 2 hours and 10 minutes, has a Rotten Tomatoes score of 76% with an audience score of 92% and a 4.2 on Letterboxd. Well, both movies are pretty neck to neck, right? I guess in terms of audience and critics approval. Crowd pleasers. Both movies were released in the fall of 2006. Let me read you a list of some movies released in 2006. And as I read them, I want you to give it your audience satisfaction score. Out of 100. Between 1 and 100. And tell me your score. The Departed. 96%. Inside Man. 84%. The Devil Wears Prada. 44%. Oh, you're so wrong about that. I've gone back and forth on The Devil Wears Prada. All right. You're absolutely I, wrong about your feeling I come feeling down on, on I, I don't love it. Apocalypto. 88%. You like Mel Gibson's movie. Okay. 300. <sighs> You're such a... <laughs> I, I love Apocalypto. 43% it's a... for 300. Mm, so wrong again. Casino Royale. 83%. I would give it like 90%. Tokyo Drift. 
Children of Men. Ooh. 98%. Little Miss Sunshine. I bet I like this movie more than most people. 86%. The Pursuit of Happiness. 50%. You're so wrong. Dead Man's Chest. That's the Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest. 70, no, 66%. Mm. Pants Labyrinth. 97%. Mission Impossible 3. That's an interesting one. 77%. Philip Seymour Hoffman is awesome in that movie. He's great in that movie. Borat. 89%. I would give it like 95. And lastly, I have on the list, the infamous Snakes on a Plane. I've never seen it. You have never seen it? I've never seen it. What would you give it? I don't know, 60%, 66%? There was a good Snakes on a Plane reference in uh, the most recent Succession episode. Yeah. I enjoyed the reference. I've been watching the Succession, but I haven't got to the last season yet. But yeah, so those were just some of the movies released in 2006. So it was a great year yeah, for movies. it's a pretty good year for movies. Today we are talking about... I, I, I want to get into the movies, but do you want to hear a, a classic Michael Hall of Shame moment? Sure. That, that that list reminded me of? Tell us. So about 2006, I was preparing to graduate film school. You and I both went to NYU film school, uh, for better or worse, and thought a lot of myself, thought all my ideas were great, and uh, you know was ready to, to chase Spielberg right out of Hollywood. And a, a friend of mine had written a, a really good short film, and we were like, this is a you know future Academy Award short film winner, and we wanted a real actress for it, and we thought, Abigail Breslin, hot off a Little Miss Sunshine. Oh, okay. So I'm cruising around the Short Hills Mall, and who do I see? Abigail Breslin. You run into her? And her family. I have major social anxiety about cold approaching people, and I was just like, you know what? No. This is one of those moments. So uh, I walked up, and I said, I am a soon-to-be film school graduate, and we have this short film, and I'd love to get the script to your agent. And they looked at me, the whole family looked at me with just disappointment, anger. Like you ruined their weekend, basically. Oh, I just, you know, they're just like, we can't even go to the mall. I gave them my Vista print business card, glossy, one-sided with my uh, msn.com email address. With a Vista print logo on the edge. And uh, I'll I'll let you guess. Do you think I ever heard from them? (laughs) Probably not. Definitely not. It'd be amazing, though, if you did hear from them and she did the film. That would have been amazing. That would be that a good story. That would have been amazing. We probably would not be recording this podcast yeah. then. Today we are talking about mystery thrillers featuring magicians. Can I ask you a question? If you were going to like a birthday party with your kid and they said, we're going to have a magician, where's your head at? I'm always on board with the magician. Me too. Magic is one of those things. I'm surprised it's not used more. I think right around this time, David Blaine and Chris, uh, what's his name? Ugh. We're not going to promote that, man. Uh, Around this time, if you turn on TV, you would see a lot of magic on TV. But they came out of David Copperfield. You had Penn and Teller. You had... uh, Even Penn and Teller were hot around 2006. You had... I think they had a TV uh, show. Who were the Tiger guys? Siegfried and Roy. There was a cultural moment in America for about 10 to 20 years where magicians were on TV constantly. Being a magician was a real respectable uh, profession. And then you had the masked magician... I think that was on Fox, and he would, like, show you how they did the tricks. And then, of course, you had Will Arnett doing magic on uh, Arrested Development. Uh, I just remember David Blaine being everywhere on TV uh, or, you know, doing some type of stunt all the time for, like, a good 10 years. He's less about the ooh-wow magic, and he's more like, I'm going to be in an ice cube for the next six weeks. Human feats. 
of magic? Stamina. Uh, do you like him? Do you like? Him? <laughs> um, he's kind of weird. I'm, you know, I, I feel like I'm a, a, a more of an appreciator of the like David Copperfield. Make the Statue of Liberty disappear. Yeah, yeah. I'll show up for that. Are you ready to pit these two period mystery thriller movies against each other? I've been ready since 2006, baby. Fingers will be severed. Women will be drowned. But only one movie can be crowned a true Hollywood champion in the Hollywood vs. Hollywood podcast. You are hostile hosting this episode. I'm always on board with a magician. Few beers, few laughs, troubles are over. We have a very simple process. Each movie will compete in several different categories, and it will be granted a point if it wins the category. In the end, whichever movie has the most total points wins this episode of the Hollywood vs. Hollywood podcast. The other movie gets removed from the stage. Michael and I are also allowed the ace of the sleeve card. Michael, what is the ace of the sleeve card? Ace of the sleeve brings an end to the debate, and you get to grant the point to the movie you prefer. Did you mention the flipper? Each ace up the sleeve is vulnerable to the other person's ace up the sleeve that can reverse the point. Let's get into the competition. You want to say something? Borden is Fallon, and Fallon is Borden. What about the people who have not watched Prestige? Then they should not be listening to this podcast. Category one. Which movie won the release date? The Illusionist was released on September 1st, 2006. The Prestige was released on October 20th, 2006. Tell me, Michael, which of these movies had the first curtain raiser? It sounds like The Illusionist got there first. Illusionist taking the early point, put it on the board. Category two. Which movie won the box office? The Illusionist, whose budget was $16.5 million, grossed $87.9 million worldwide. The Prestige, whose budget was $40 million, grossed $109.7 million worldwide. Between The Illusionist and The Prestige, which show drew more crowds, Michael? Sounds like The Prestige won the box office. Let's add it to the tally. Category three. I think we're going to run into some trouble with this one, Michael, because I think you're an emotional creature, and a lot of times uh, you, you cannot break away from that. So category three, which movie has the better title? Tell me what you think, Michael. If you don't think that The Prestige is the better title, I really don't know that we should continue working together. And let me tell you why I think The Illusionist is definitely and clearly the better title. Let me start with one of the huge uh, mistakes of my life. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably one, one of many it's probably one of the biggest regrets in my movie watching career i came to the theaters when both the movies were playing and i went and watched the illusionist because the illusionist is simply the better title the prestige the only reason why you and i would now say in 2023 is the better title is because we know the movie the prestige and we understand what it is in 2006 when these movies came out the word the prestige it says to me, I'm about to watch a dramatic story about high society or something. The Illusionist is much more alluring. It has that magical touch to it. The Prestige just needed Normally, a Normally, I'm on board with the vantage point from which you judge this category, which is the unintelligible moviegoer, right? Like you just you show up at the box office, you have a list of titles, and you pick one. 
we don't live in vacuums. We don't live in curated vacuums of knowledge, right? I think you can take into account, especially for these movies, that there was marketing that went along with them and that most people likely got to the theater with some knowledge as to what the films were about. And I am normally comfortable joining you at your vantage point, but this time around, no, no, no. The Prestige is not only a great title unto itself, it not only references an important thing about magic, and and we learn about that. Did you know the film. about Prestige in relationship to magic before you watched this no. movie? No, right. or before I was aware that there was a movie about magic called The Prestige, no. But it also describes the most important part of the film. It describes the revelatory moment of the film. If we and were talking I, about... I understand. I understand where you're coming from. You're coming from, I have no information, and I'm looking at a list of titles. And, and I'm telling that, you... That is the spirit of this category. I refuse to join you today because... I told you, you're an emotional person. Jonathan Nolan deserves some respect for... Oh, well, actually, this was based on a novel, so I assume the novel is the same name. Yeah, Um, it's just too good a title. I'm sure that they said people might not know what this movie is about. And I think that is a reason why I did not go and watch this movie when it was in theater, because I did not want to watch a movie called The Prestige. And how did you describe this decision at the top of this category? The best. No, you described it as a huge mistake. You made a huge mistake. Because of the content. Not because of the title. I can't travel down the road with you this time. You, I, your emotions I've are taking over. I've uh, been very flexible on this category in the past. This movie needed a title like... Ace Up My Sleeve, The Prestige. Okay, let me just I say... I dare you. I me, dare you. Let me just say this. The rivalry... Hey, hey, hey. What's the rule about the Ace Up the Sleeve? End of debate. All right, here it comes. Ace Up the Sleeve, Ace Up the Sleeve. I'm reversing your ace of the sleeve right. with my ace of the sleeve. I, I, I uh, end of debate, Michael. I am, end of debate. You know, be your own man. All right, get your own category. Yeah, at least it's the end of the debate, and we don't have to keep talking about this. Category four. I also wrote down the real transported man as a title. Are you okay? Over end there? of debate. End of debate. Let's move this show along. I thought I could convince you. Category four. Which movie has the better leading actor? Oh, man, I should have saved my yeah, ace of sleep you for should have, one. yeah. Let's start with Edward I Norton. I want you to know that I'm not going to surrender any categories for the rest of this episode. So All prepare right. to be here for eight hours. I think you're in love with the prestige and you're going to not objectively think about this. I would say in eight of the ten episodes we've recorded, you've complimented me on my, what's the word I'm looking for? Bipartisanship? <laughs> my... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, but those are movies that you don't really care for. This one, you you love this movie as as do I. But as a podcaster doing a show about these movies, we have to try you to be are, objective. You are hostile hosting this episode. <laughs> Can we just get into this category? This is Ed Norton's filmography. All right, so wait, so you don't you don't agree that Edward Norton and Paul Giamatti are co-leads and that Christian Bale and Hugh Jackman are co-leads. Yeah, I disagree with that. The reason is that I don't think Paul Giamatti is a co-lead. He's the detective side character in the movie, even though he has a lot of screen presence. So therefore, I settled on Ed Norton as a lead. I don't think Paul Giamatti joins this cast 
unless he's told it's his movie as much as Ed Norton's. I think you're trying to fit Giamatti into this so you can have the two actors in the other one. So let's talk about Ed Norton. This is Norton's filmography. Primal Fear, American History X, Rounders, which I think you love, Fight Club, The Score, which I like, Death to Smoochie, Red Dragon, and The Italian Job. And these are all the movies he did before The Illusionist. A fascinating career leading up to The Illusionist. And after The Illusionist, he got The Incredible Hulk, in which he butted heads with Marvel. Uh, But he has made somewhat of a comeback in recent years. Why don't you tell me some of the movies he's done since then? I wanted to mention 25th Hour. Yeah. Important movie. Grand Budapest Hotel. He's kind of joined up with uh, the Wes Anderson troupe. He's done, he's done a lot of uh, Wes Anderson since then. He started in Moonrise Kingdom and then Grand Budapest. He's in Isle of Dogs as one of the dog characters. I think he's in the French Dispatch, right? He's in the French Dispatch. And he's going to be in Asteroid City. Yeah. Which looks like a lot of fun. Did um, you mention Birdman? No. So there's Birdman, there's Glass Onion, and anything else you want to add? I just saw Glass Onion, which I enjoyed him in. I, I didn't think it was as good as Kni- Knives Out but I, I enjoyed Dan Norton in it. Rounders is a sick f-ing movie. If you haven't seen Rounders, fix your life. There's a really interesting like little camaraderie thing happening with like the people uh, around the illusionist because Koppelman and Levine, who exec produced the illusionist, co-wrote Rounders. Mm. And then uh, they also, Koppelman and Levine went on to create Billions, starring Paul Giamatti. Little... Film and TV making family here. Well, uh, so it's a great filmography. I think he, you know, he's one of those iconic actors. His filmography is untouchable in many ways. I really love him in American History X. I love him in Fight Club. The Italian Job is one of those movies that I just like. I just watched Red Dragon for the first time. He's great in that. Really, really liked it. And I want to mention a film which I don't know if I'm completely wrong about this, but I find super charming it's a film written and directed by edward norton also starring edward norton called keeping the faith it's another kind of movie that they don't make anymore it's a new york based rom-com about a priest who's friends with a rabbi and they're both in love with the same woman it's uh ben stiller uh and uh, jenna elfman also in the cast and it's just a really sweet movie with a lot of like clever one-liners and stuff and i mean i've probably seen it 10 times i i I just think it's such a charming movie i also like motherless brooklyn which he wrote and directed i thought that was pretty good he's a great actor i really wish he was doing more movies i'm very glad that he is in collaboration with uh, wes anderson going forward what did you think of uh him his performance as eisenheim the illusionist in the illusionist i think there's a general issue of tone In The Illusionist, the different contributors to The Illusionist don't all seem to agree on what kind of movie that they are in. And Ed Norton is playing the uh, Eduard Abramovich slash Eisenheim role with stone cold seriousness. You think it should have, be, should have been a more fun movie? Because Giamatti's character is kind, of, is kind of comedic. I want my magicians to be a little bit fun. You're a magician. Be a little fun. Be a showman. One of the central conflicts of the movie is is who is smarter, the crown prince or Eisenheim? And Eisenheim 
doesn't have to be the smartest. He he could be the most clever without being the smartest. It feels like Ed Norton refused to let go of like Eisenheim is like the smartest and the most clever character in this film. Is that Norton's fault or is that the director's fault? I mean, you know, a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. Yeah. I think what, what was missing in Norton's performance is that in The Prestige, I felt the anguish that Borden or Angier were going through. Whereas in the illusionist, I never felt the anguish of the lost love that Edward Norton was supposedly going through. So you're saying he didn't have the anguish... Like, what is motivating his actions? Post her death or before her death? So supposedly, the events of what he does are triggered when he first sees her in the performance when the crown prince attends the performance, correct? The character of Eisenheim is kind of defined by his like cold intellectualism and it makes it difficult to empathize you know with the story of their their love i don't i don't feel like these guys are in love i feel like they 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 have an affair and they're trying to get away from the powers that be and i'm even i miss the camaraderie that cutter shares with the magicians in the prestige yeah the eisenheim operates kind of like he's above everybody yeah, you even know? his relationship to the manager is not as well defined and developed. Well, he's just shown in total control, and everybody kind of revolves around his little planet. Hard to sympathize with or empathize with. Let's get to the lead actor in The Prestige. Now, you and I disagree on this, but let me make the case for why I feel Angier is a main character. Because, uh, you know, I was like, I can't have two lead actors. I have to pick one of these guys. So I decided to figure out whose story it is and the other one would then go to the supporting cast category. In the film The Prestige, here's the case for Angier being the main character of the movie. The movie is called The Prestige. Who is the prestige of the movie? The revelation to the audience about how Angier's real transported man trick works is The Prestige. The movie opens with a shot of... Is the revelation that Fallon and Borden are brothers switching, is that not also a prestige? Not for the purposes of the story that we're watching. It's a great uh, reveal. There, there's a lot of reveals like that throughout the movie. Because we're told early on that they are, you know, they're doubles, basically, right? And there's doubt in our mind about that as well, correct? And on a rewatch, you can kind of see all the, all the little crumbs that are laid out for that. I don't know if this speaks to my gullibility uh, as a, a film watcher. And I, I'm sort of defined by my gullibility as a, a film watcher. I never see the twist coming. In this, in this particular movie? In any movie. Oh, really? In any movie. And, and I recall being more surprised by the Borden reveal, which in retrospect seems insane watching it now and like taking notes as i go to prepare for this podcast it's unbelievable how obvious it should be that borden and fallon are twins yeah but there's really never an alternate we know root is not in play at the end we don't see angier going to find another double so when he pulls the the new transported man act I guess it was already in my head that he involved Tesla. Tesla made this machine. It's it's mysterious. So I think I, I think I get what's going on. I recall that not feeling like the big reveal that the Borden-Fallon reveal was. I wish I could go back in time because this movie is a great on the rewatch. In fact, the last time I was watching this, I noticed something new, which was how Olivia 
influenced some of the decisions, which I hadn't caught on to before when I've watched this movie multiple times. But let me, let me continue making the case for Angier. Uh, the movie opens with a shot of his hats, and the movie ends with a shot of him in the watery grave. Now, this is character and like moving the, driving the story forward. It is Angier who intentionally sets Borden's demise in motion in the beginning of the movie. It is Angier's obsession that drives the movie. His obsession to seek revenge drives Act 1. His obsession to find Borden's transported man trick drives Act 2. His obsession to destroy Borden drives Act 3. So it's always his obsession that pu- that's pushing the actions that all- both these characters are doing forward. Did you know that I was going to come in here wanting the two, two leads? Did uh, you prepare this argument for me or for the audience? I needed to pick one, and I thought about both the actors. And I thought about, well, if I had to pick one main character, who is the main character? Who is the logical main character in this movie? And that was the logic I came up with. All right. I'm on board. Oh, have I convinced you? Or are you dubious? I don't know that I needed to be convinced so much because I think if you were to poll the population who have seen The Prestige and said, who's in The Prestige? Who's the first person they would think of? Probably Bale because of his popularity. But not in 2006. That's probably true. You might be right there. Hugh Jackman is lights out in this movie. He is awesome. And I am happy to call him the lead of this film. Perfect. Hugh Jackman, up until this point, did X-Men, Swordfish, Kate and Leopold, my SO's favorite, X-Men 2, Van Helsing, also my SO's favorite, The Fountain. Your wife really likes Van Helsing? Yeah. That's awesome. Well, she loves Hugh Jackman. You just put him in any movie and she's on. And The Fountain, also released in 2006. Since The Prestige, Jackman goes on to do Flushed Away, Happy Feet, continues to do the X-Men franchise with special mention to Logan. He does Real Steel. He does Les Miserables. He does Prisoners, a favorite of ours. He does Chappie. He does Fan. And most recently, he did The Greatest Showman. Do you want to go over any of his other movies? I got another little story. Can I give you a little story? Sure. Okay. Long story short, I I had a chance to go to the uh, premiere of the film Australia uh, starring Hugh Jackman, also Nicole Kidman, a film by Baz Luhrmann. I got to go to the premiere at the Ziegfeld Theater in New York City. So after the film, uh, I I had brought my copy of X2, a double disc DVD copy of X2. I wanted to get it signed by Hugh Jackman, so I staked out to exit. There's this long line of SUVs, you know, to pick up the VIPs, and I'm, I'm, you know, this just little nerdy kid there with X2 DVD and a Sharpie in his hand. And the security, there's a big security guard, and he looks at me, and he like looks at the other security guard, and he and he says watch this one. Like, I'm going to start some trouble. Uh, you know, Nicole Kidman comes out, gets in the car, she leaves. Boz Lerman comes out, gets in the car, he leaves. Hugh Jackman, he glides right past me, gets in his car, shuts the door. And I mean, my face must have just, you know, drooped. And then the car door opens and out comes Hugh Jackman. He comes over, takes my copy of X2, signs it, hands it back to me, says, you have a good night. Oh, wow. Gets back in the car, drives away. Hugh Jackman's a hero. Oh, that's a very sweet, heartwarming story. So um, Christian Bale's performance, I think, and you correct me if I'm wrong, overshadows Hugh Jackman's performance in this movie. I believe that's probably people's takeaway. But if you just focus on Hugh Jackman for a couple of seconds and you see him as Root and you see him as uh, the, the Count, what was the Count? Lord Caldlow. 
Caldlow, Lord Caldlow. They should pick like, can they pick names like Lord Mike and Lord John? Hugh Jackman is such a delight to watch in all of these like other characters that he's playing along with uh, Angier. And when I saw him as Root, I was thinking, what a missed opportunity to have this actor who could have presumably played a lot of supporting characters over the years because Root ultimately is so fun to watch. And Hugh Jackman's talent is kind of overshadowed by Wolverine because I, I think his, his filmography is dominated by playing Wolverine in the X-Men universe. So he's a much better actor than the opportunities that he's got over the years. He's too damn handsome. He's too damn handsome to be a character actor. And, and he is a great character actor, which is movie proofs. And he's too damn talented. He is like Neil Patrick Harris. If Neil Patrick Harris could beat the crap out of most men. I would say he's more like uh, Brad Pitt, maybe. Brad Pitt's not like a song and dance man. Okay. Hugh Jackman is, the, you know dance. the term triple threat? Yeah. He, he acts, he dances, he sings. I mean, he is as successful as a stage performer as any stage performer and he's as successful as like a leading action film actor as any action film actor yeah he's i mean it's an i can't think of anybody else like him so i love ed norton and i think he he's a great actor and i love watching him watching him in movies in fact part of the reason why i why i watched the illusionist was because ed norton was on the poster but you know what? When I just think about these two performances, for me, it's Hugh Jackman. What do I you mean, think? You, you said it, but I want to double back. Seeing him play Root is so much fun. There are a couple times in The Prestige where you get to see Christian Bale just taking advantage of the differences and what we will learn are our two brothers when he's yelling at Sarah, you want, you know, don't you think I want to live like this? You know, he gets some of these kind of turn it up to 11 moments and Angier doesn't get a lot of those. So for him to have the opportunity to have fun with the root character. A simple line read like when he when he says you don't know? You don't know? In the in the cemetery? That was just that simple line read was just magical coming out of him. His scenes with Bowie and Andy Serkis, he's bringing stuff to the table in every scene. And he also knows, he seems to have great intuition for when to let other people be in the spotlight, which I think is the reason that people would think The Prestige is more a Christian Bale movie. But the more we talk about it here, I do agree that it's Hugh Jackman's movie. And he's awesome in it. Put it on the board, Michael, for The Prestige. Category five. Which movie has the best rest of the cast? This is meaning everyone except the lead actor. This one is super, super easy for me. But you tell me, what are your thoughts? It is really simple if you just do the rundown, right? I mean, let's start with The Illusionist. You have uh, Jessica Biel as Sophie otherwise known as Duchess Von Teschen. Uh, you have Rufus Sewell as Crown Prince Leopold. You have uh, Eddie Marzen as uh, Joseph Fischer, who is see, the... See, I, I just uh, wrote down Giamatti, and I just wrote down uh, <laughs> well, Jessica Biel. See, what's tough is in my notes, uh, I had Giamatti as co-lead, so oh. I did not even get to Giamatti. Um, but that's it. I mean, you've to me, you've got four name actors of a, a certain caliber. Do you want to talk about Giamatti now? You should talk about Giamatti because you took 
more notes on him as a leading actor. So I want you to talk about him, but I want to mention one thing. This podcast is a lot of work. And uh, <laughs> we, we, you know, we watch the movies, but besides watching the movies, we take massive notes on the movie. We research the movie. And in my research, I came across a thing where Ed Norton and Giamatti and Beale are not as big a deal in 2023 as they were in 2006. So if you went to the theaters in 2006, Christian Bale, Hugh Jackman, surprisingly, in my opinion, carried less weight than Ed Norton and Giamatti. Beale was a very successful TV actor. Giamatti was uh, coming hot off uh, Sideways and Splendor, American Splendor. I love him in Saving Private Ryan. I don't know if you remember him in that. He was uh, well known for Cinderella Man. He's in Paycheck. He's in Lady in the Water. Did you like that one, Lady in the Water? I am a big fan of Lady in the Water, and I will fight anybody who says the movie is stupid. I disagree with you on that one. I will. Dis- <laughs> it is a stupid movie, but I love the I love the effects in that movie. I do love the effects in Lady in the Water. We are so lucky to have Giamatti in our collective lives. I mean, he's been character acting his way through amazing films for like thirty years now. The, the first film of that he appeared in that I feel like I noticed him was was Private Parts, the uh, Howard Stern biopic, which I, I think is actually a good movie. I haven't seen it in a long time. Uh, and then I remember him popping up in The Truman Show, uh, that bit part in Saving Private Ryan. And then um, I feel like the first time I kind of really saw him stretching his legs, and not to say he wasn't in other films, but for me, uh, Man on the Moon, uh, which I'm a fan of. Uh, you mentioned American Splendor. I just rewatched Sideways. Oh, man, it's such a performance. And I love Cinderella Man. I love Cinderella Man. Ron Howard, I've said it before. I'll say it again. An American treasure. Um, and I, I'm going to double down on that. I think Russell Crowe, even though he's Australian, is a... An American-Australian <laughs> American uh, treasure. Uh, oh, man. Giamatti brings... So much like every man energy to these roles, uh, instant empathy. Ba, ba, bam! I would like to have a beer with him. Uh, the Prestige has Christian Bale, Scarlett Johansson, Michael Kane. Is it Sir Michael Kane? He might be a knight. Better be. Yeah. Rebecca Hall. I love Rebecca Hall in this movie. David fucking Bowie. Andy fucking Circus. <laughs> The thing is, I did not know who Andy Serkis was when I watched I'm the I'm really glad that you're as excited about Andy Serkis as I am. Andy Serkis, he is so amazing. He can play a man. He can play an ape. He can do it all. He can do it all. And, and his eyes, man. I love his eyes. I feel like if I look at them too long, I'll fall in love with him. <laughs> what do you think of that uh, prestige It's cast? knockout. It's knockout. There's no, there's no weak link in the chain of supporting cast, in the prestige. And it's probably the thing that makes it most ridiculous that I, and I imagine a lot of people, but I'm not going to speak for everybody, did not know that Borden and Fallon were the same person. Because everywhere you look, every minor character in this movie is played by a wonderful performer. And just for context, these guys, most of these guys were not huge at the time. If you were a 
connoisseur of pop culture. You knew everybody. And then there's just this one character who's got a lot of facial hair and is is nobody you've ever seen before. This one's easy for me. You agree with me on this one? Do we talk about Christian Bale all that much? We talked about Giamatti a lot. Yeah, we, we haven't talked about Bale. Why don't you... Let's talk a little bit about yeah. Bale. Let's, let's, let's give this man his due. Can I just start with, before you jump in, Empire of the Sun, which is the debut role that Christian Bale had, a Steven Spielberg film, is an incredible, incredible movie. It's one of my favorite war movies. If you guys haven't seen it, go check it out. Christian Bale is the main character of this film. He's a child actor in his movies. It's his Hollywood debut, and he's incredible in this movie. You can talk about the rest of his filmography. American Psycho, The Dark Knight Trilogy, The Fighter. I love him in The Fighter. I love. He takes all the attention away from Mark Wahlberg. The Fighter and American Hustle, I think, are great movies. I feel like American Hustle became a bit of a a punchline the year that that it came out, and it was at the Oscars. But I'm a big fan of Bale's performance in that movie, Amy Adams, Jeremy Renner. Um, Terminator Genesis? No, sorry, Salvation. Terminator Salvation. Yeah. It was great in it. Um, it's palatable. The big short. So, you know, Bale's been in our, our lives for a long time now. I mean, talk about stalwart, right? Like Vice. When you Yeah, Vice is fine. Um as I mean, I tried to write down the the, the roles that, that come to mind. You did not mention the machinist? And it's a it's a great role and it's it's an important m- movie for why he's in our lives today. Uh, um, by the way, Bale was great in Amsterdam. Think about his performance in Amsterdam. I can't think of a bigger misfire in recent history than the movie Amsterdam. Forget the movie. I almost want to watch it again because of how confusing the existence of that movie is to me. And that's, I'm a fan of all the people associated with that movie. You're not a fan of Washington. Don't lie to me. I hope for good things <laughs> for, is it John David Washington? Yeah, yeah. I, he, okay. I mean, we'll get to Tenet. We'll get, we'll get to Tenet in this episode. I'm sure of it. Um, we all love Christian Bale. I, you know, those are the movies I wanted to mention, and I think we can move on. The Prestige has the best overall cast, supporting cast, between these two films. I want to complain about Michael Caine, but I can hold off on that until later. But I would love to complain about it. Ten episodes in here, and I've yet to dive across this table to attack you. But if you come after Michael Caine... All right, all right. Here's here, hot take. I am super effing tired of seeing Michael Caine as the guy who's right next to the main character of the movie talking gibberish in every Christopher Nolan movie. He's doing that in the Dark Knight trilogy. He's doing that in The Prestige. He's doing that in uh, the the master movie Inception. He's doing that in um, Tenet. It's annoying at this point. Just give him some other character to play in your movie, Nolan. I've said it before. I'll say it again. I don't care. It's what he does, and he does it better than anybody. So I don't know what you're complaining about. Needs a new face. Nolan, you can keep writing this character over and over and over again, but you need to replace this actor with someone else. Category five. Wait, no, that was category five. Category six. The best rest of the cast goes to The Prestige. Category six. The best, best scene. In this category, Michael and I agree on the scene we think is the best scene in each movie. And then we decide on which movie has the best, best scene. For The Illusionists, my favorite scene, 
was when Eisenheim does the sword trick in the private audience scene. What do you think of that scene? I think that that's the best scene in the movie. I had one other scene which I enjoyed, wherein Chief Inspector Yule arrives at the theater Eisenheim is performing in to inspect it before the crown prince attends a performance. And he uh, expresses to Eisenheim that he is an amateur magician himself. And Eisenheim shows him the ball and the hand trick, wherein the, the blood flows from your hand. And so it's a little bit lighter and he can tell. Um, by, by the way, uh, after watching this movie, I did this trick with my daughter. She loved it. And I taught her how to do it. And it works. It's a great trick. I believe it. It might be the only fun scene in the whole movie. Well, so I wrote down, as an honorable mention, every single scene with Giamatti and Norton yeah, together. Yeah. But I this think, one, I just there ha- it's a little bit lighter. But, but you're, you're, you were right in your first suggestion that the private performance for the Crown Prince and his little group of friends where we get the uh, kind of sword in the stone moment it is, I, I think, the best scene in the movie. I think it is, yeah. And I love that the, when the crown, crown Prince kind of has to, without saying a word, get Eisenheim's permission to move the sword moment in that scene. This film lacks subtlety. And that moment just lasts way too long. I don't know if I agree with it you. It could but... have been so subtle where he goes to pull the sword and it doesn't move and he gives him a little look and then... It comes right up. You would have directed it differently. The, the Illusionist is a heavy-handed effort, and we'll talk about that more. The prestige I have for the best scene, the entire movie, man. I can watch this movie. I can pick it up anywhere. I can drop it off anytime. I can resume it again at any single part of the movie. It has a I lot love of movie. great scenes. Do you want to mention any specific scenes? Because Do I? I'll go through it quickly. Early in the movie, Cutter, Borden, Angier, and Julia backstage, they're talking about knots, uh, about what knot, you know, they should be using for the performance, and uh, Cutter is commenting on why Angier should not be kissing his wife's leg during the show. Slipknot versus the Longford... uh... Double? Longford Lang- double. Langford. Langford double. Langford double. I don't know what that is. I know a lot of knots, guys. I don't know that one. You get all the characters. You get the differences kind of between them and their relationships while you're learning a little bit about magic, you know, and, and, and the behind the scenes of it all. The next scene that I really, really like uh, is when Angier sees uh, Root as his plausible double for the first time when Root comes out on stage. <sighs> Man, it's just such an entertaining scene. This movie has some incredible doubles effects. How are they doing the, the handheld wraparound? Yeah. You know, and they know. and they do this thing where they're shooting in a way that you would if you didn't have the technology to put them both on screen, right? That you get a lot of the the back of heads, but then there are shots where you just see both of them and it like it, it fakes, and it's ha- it's handheld. And it, yeah, and it fakes you out. It's 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 so clever. Uh I really like the scene where Borden is in the prison yard. And he's talking to the guard, and the guard is kind of leaning into him a little bit, and he ends up faking that he messed up a trick so that he can put the chain on the guard's ankle. You know, there's a sequence, not precisely a scene, because there's a lot of these in the film. You know, we don't have a category for editing, but the prestige, oh, man. I mean, that, that can go for every Nolan movie. 
Right. No the editing is just incredible. Nolan is always leaning into like time manipulation. I think one of the best examples of of cross cutting and cross cutting is when you are watching um, multiple scenes progress or multiple sequences of action progress at the same time by cutting back and forth between those different pieces of narrative. So in this example, you have Angier. He's in Colorado. He's reading the diary that Olivia gave to him by Borden's direction. You have Borden manipulating Root and explaining to him that he's an amateur magician. And when he had a, a used a double, the double had all the power in the relationship. You have Cutter explaining to Angier why, why this new dynamic in the relationship won't work going forward. And then ultimately you have the sabotage of the new transported man trick where Angier falls through the floor, breaks his leg. Borden takes his place on stage, and Root comes down from the ceiling, uh, tied up as as an advertisement for the professor's new uh, show at the Pentagia. So you see these four different things unfolding amidst each other. It takes a lot of confidence in your storytelling, and it takes a lot of skill to put these scenes together uh, in a way that is, you know, just intellectually manageable uh, for the audience. So. I think that's one example of many of the great cross-cutting sequences in this film. And then last on my list is any scene with uh, Bowie as Tesla. Yeah. So uh, for honorable mentions for the movie, I wrote down Angier in Colorado Springs. If there's one section in this movie that I'm like, I can just chill out to. I could have watched a whole movie about Angier in Colorado. Yeah, it's just awesome. The globes on the ground lighting up. The first shot where he's there and, and you see the city in the distance and he says... The whole town has electricity. You mentioned Tesla is awesome. We're going to talk about it in cinematography. We're going to talk about Colorado Springs during the cinematography. I love all the drowning scenes when Julia drowns. <laughs> I love when Angier drowns. Even uh, that, the beat where he, where Angier has his head in the sink and it's cutting back to the imagery of, of Julia underwater. Those are sequences that don't work without the editing. These guys are so talented. I love when... Angier shoots Borden's hand. Good scene. I love it when Borden goes to retrieve Fallon at the graveyard. Good scene. <laughs> and you already mentioned when Borden crashes Angier's transported man. I mean, the entire movie is delightful. Do you want to pick... The, the, the spirit of this category one is... One scene. One scene against one scene. To so, me, it's Angier and Root. Meeting Root. Okay, I'm down. Not meeting Root. Root appearing in costume for the first time as Angier. And Angier seeing him as a plausible double for the first time. Can, can I counter you with Borden crashes into Angier's transported man, which covers the leg break and... I have else. played Caesar. I have played Faust. So this is really How like How difficult the, could it be to play the great Danton? Again, we're comparing these two scenes. I know. It's just, it, to me, it's just a great propulsive I, scene with some of the better acting. Not flashy, but really impressive cinematography. If I were to compare scene to scene, I would be dubious with, with the combo. No, you're not going to drag me along on this one. I am happy to give this to the prestige because of all the wonderful we scenes. We didn't even talk about, did we, did we talk, oh. So, okay, so we're comparing, we're doing the Angier scene, Angier and Root as doubles, and the private performance. For me oh, to man, give it you're to, right. It for, is, yeah, that might be a better scene. Yeah. For me, to, for me to give it to the prestige, 
you need to give me a better scene from the prestige than the one you have chosen. Which scene did <laughs> Wait, which scene did so which scene do you come down with for the prestige? Uh it is where Angier f- comes down, breaks his leg. Yeah. And then Borden comes up and says, Come watch the transported okay. man across. Okay. okay, that's fine. Because that that's to fine. me secures I was trying to be like a little bit more artful, but yeah, you're right. <laughs> All right. Let's give it to the prestige for its numerous awesome scenes and the one that we picked as the best scene. There's just too much magic for my stage at the Pantages. <laughs> uh, category seven. The best title drop which is the movie's name stated in a scene. You tell me. Well, I don't know that there's any true title drop. So let's go over it. In The Illusionist, Giamatti's character, Inspector Uhl, mentions Eisenheim the Illusionist during his voiceover. He also says Eisenheim the Illusionist a couple of times during his arrest at the beginning and end of the movie. Yeah. And I think that is the good title drop in The Illusionist. Okay. Twice. Sure. In The Prestige, Michael Caine's voiceover does it. Uh, But it's not really a voiceover because he's actually talking to the little girl, I think. But my favorite title drop is when Ackerman comes to see Angier's trick before it's going to be put on. Yeah, that's the one. And after Angier is in the Tesla machine and Ackerman says something like, that's nothing, there has to be a... And then Angier cuts him off and says, the Prestige. No, he says... A prestige. A prestige. I think that qualifies. I think that was a title drop moment. It is really great, but it's not a title drop. It is. It's not. It's not the title. The title is The Prestige, and he says A prestige. I think, I think it's allowable. I will, I will allow it. The rules of this category are inflexible. You are a strange person because you're flexible sometimes and other times you're not. This is one of the times you need to be inflexible. Sorry, this is one of the times you need to be flexible. No, no, no. Because right. the, the, the whole... Fine, the, fine, fine. I mean... In that case, the illusionist does it better. Yeah, it, that's what I'm saying. I, I, I mean, again... Are I, you just I was, trying to I give was a point say, to the illusionist? No, I was going to say I don't make the rules, but we do make the rules, and these are the rules. Fine. I'm happy to give it to the illusionist because I love Giamatti, and I love Giamatti arresting Eisenheim, and I love his announcement. It, it's a great monologue from him when he's arresting him. All right, easy peasy. I love the moment, though. The Ackerman moment. Oh, yeah, yeah. I love it when... I'm keep doing lines. I love it when Ackerman says, pardon me, it's very rare to see real magic. Uh, point... <laughs> point the illusionist. Put it on the board, Michael. Category eight. Best music moment slash needle drop. One of the best things about the illusionist is its score. It's done by Philip Glass, who has done films like Candyman, Taking Lives... Secret Window. He has been nominated three times for an Oscar for his work in Kunden, The Hours, and Notes on a Scandal. What did you think about Philip Glass's score in The Illusionist? I think it's the best thing about the movie. The movie relies on it a lot, particularly during an extended flashback sequence. And the score is put front and center. There are opening credits to this film in a classic they don't make them like they used to sort of way those are great opening credits yeah themes right like getting used to the themes kind of like a overture you know kind of like an overture when you you go to see a a live show so yeah philip glass not just a a film score composer but uh an american composer uh considered i mean extraordinarily influential in the last century and the films that i think about 
first, uh, when I think about Philip Glass's uh, film work, are The Truman Show. He did Truman Show? Yep. The Thin Blue Line, which is an Errol Morris documentary, which kind of redefined what documentaries are. Philip Glass and Errol Morris are two just kind of like new thinkers, you know? They really did things in a different way and putting them together. The Thin Blue Line is an incredible documentary, which uh, everyone should watch, along with The Fog of War, which is going to, when I describe it, sound like the ultimate dad documentary. It's a documentary that is based on a lengthy interview with Robert McNamara, who was the Secretary of Defense for, I think, most of, if not all, the Vietnam War. And he's talking about lessons that he learned that he applied later to his professional career, things that he learned in his time managing the Vietnam War. It is a distillation of incredibly useful things for everyone to think about when they are making decisions. And it is extraordinarily entertaining considering it's like an interview with a 70 year old man it is an it is it. it's one long interview with b-roll broken up into different chapters and it's got this incredible philip glass score the fog of war whew, lights out the scenes that stuck out to me for the score in uh the illusionist was the main title sequence there's a really nice moment of score during the uh, orange tree trick But I feel like that's a moment, actually, where what's on screen kind of limits your ability to focus on on the music. The kind of stilted love scene, sex scene between uh, Eisenheim and Sophie. I I don't love the way it's shot, but the score is very present and beautiful in that moment. Uh, And then at the end, you know, ultimately when we see Eisenheim reuniting with Sophie in the mountains, there's no dialogue and and the score really gets a, a moment to shine as we see the uh, the cabin that reminded me of, of where we leave the Mandalorian and Grogu at the end of uh, Mandalorian Season 3. All right. David Julian scored The Prestige. He composed for Nolan in Following, Memento, and Insomnia. He has composed for movies like The Descent and The Cabin in the Woods. But he, you know, he's had a broad body of work. What do you think of David Julian's score in The Prestige? The score in The Prestige is great. There are... A lot of moments where it has, it feels like filler, but it, it, it's doing a lot. It's kind of one of those things where like less is more, right? There are moments to me where it stands out. One of the first things you hear is kind of like an orchestral drone, which reminds me of, you know, when you hear uh, an orchestra like warming up, you know, the, mm, uh, something uh, that, that almost feels like out of a Boslerman joint. And we get that first taste of the score over the, the shot of the top hats, which is just a baller way to open this movie. When the score is not doing like the suspenseful drone thing, it becomes a little bit more intricate and there's more to chew on. There's a track in, on the score album called Borden Meets Sarah, which is nice because there's very few parts of this movie that are sweet. And the music does a lot to kind of indicate that this is that kind of moment. I think the score really shines in that scene we talked about already, which is the first time that Angier sees Root and believes that he could play his double. Um, and it really elevates Angier's final monologue. So it's not flashy. And yeah, it's, it's much more noticeable in The Illusionist. And, you know, I think both the scores complement the movies. I think for me, the biggest moment in the prestigious score was when 
Angier takes a bow under the stage. I think that was like when the score actually stands out. And in the meantime, it, it serves the movie. It kind of is in the background. But the thing about the score is that as we see in future Nolan movies, like The Dark Knight, Interstellar, uh, Inception, Interstellar, great score, by the way, you see where Nolan wants to go with the score. Bigger. Much bigger and influential. When Nolan does a score, a lot of movies that come out right after it follow the trend. So to me, Julian is... (laughs) Good one. Julian is uh, doing a great job here, but it's not iconic like a lot of Nolan scores. I mean, I think that you said it. It serves the movie. Which which one's more memorable, Illusionist or The Prestige? Which one's the like when you think about the movie? To me, the Illusionist, Illusionist has music a just score. bubbles up. Illusionist to the top. has a better score. Yeah. it's a better score unto itself. But I actually think, um, I mean, that's the thing, right? Like when you decide not to be flashy, people are going to be are going to not award you all the time the category music moments oh yeah i'm not i'm not i'm just i'm just saying like put some respect on david julian here he got left in the dust by (laughs) by chris nolan which like that must kind that must kind of suck yeah i wonder what that was about and then be like oh uh oh hans is gonna do your next one uh okay it serves the this score serves the movie and this is a great movie so you know what what else do you want I think we agree that this point is going to go to illusionist because yeah. of it's just more memorable. But I want to mention one other thing for a film that is totally score. The music is totally score based. I don't even think we, we don't get any like I'm talking about the prestige. We don't hear anybody playing a record. We don't hear any music associated with the magic acts. We get score from front to back for two hours and Five minutes. And then at the end of the film, we get Tom York's Analyze as Chris Nolan's name appears on screen. That takes a lot of balls because you must think or know that you made a cool ass movie if you're going to wait until the very end and drop a Tom York song over your director card. I love the move. I love the move. It's the only thing that dates the movie at all in that we'll know when the movie was made because that the song is indicative of its era. But I think the music is going to be like appreciated as, as essentially timeless as the movie. This movie could have come out 50 years ago. This movie could come out 50 years from now and it would be good and it would be cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so best, uh, we're giving it to The Illusionist, yes? Yes. Category nine. Best director slash which movie was directed better? The Illusionist is directed by Neil Berger. My favorite movie of Neil Berger is Limitless, <laughs> which is a great entertaining movie. Is that the one where the guy is limitless? <laughs> That's an office reference. He has also done The Divergent, The Upside, and Voyagers. You know what he's also done? A whole bunch of billions. He's done like five episodes of that. What do you think of Berger's direction in The Illusionist? It is not a stellar directing effort. There's some rough spots in this movie. There's that lengthy backstory where we, you know, go into the past for a really long time and we're treated to a classic old film effect, an old film flicker effect, which just feels really ham-fisted. And you don't think that was done in camera? No. 
Okay. No, I believe that I had that same effect in my Microsoft Movie Maker <laughs> software. Um, it's tough. It's tough. And ultimately, I feel like a lot of the sins of the story of this film, which specifically would be like, I never really thought that Sophie was dead. I kind of lay that at the right, at the feet of the the writers more than the direct. Oh wait, Neil Berger wrote and directed this film. This, this was also <laughs> a, a, a kind of independently funded film uh, by uh, Yari Film Group. I know his name's at at least appears four times before we see any of our actors. Yeah. Bob Yari. <laughs> The other thing, whenever I see Neil Berger's name, I, I, I think for a second about Neil Breen. Do you know Neil Breen? No, who's that? Neil Breen is of the class of filmmakers that you would include Tommy Wiseau in. He has made, he has, he's made like five or six feature films, which are, they would be described as unwatchable if they weren't so fun to watch. Uh, you can go on uh, YouTube and find some scenes, some great scenes from Neil Breen movies. I, have, I had a hard time engaging with The Illusionist. I don't know if it's ever fun. It's 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 a little bit fun during the, like the first magic sequence. I, I think it's fun during every Giamatti scene. Even when it's Giamatti and the Crown Prince, like Noah Norton. It's fun then. Like, it's, I think, it's, I think Giamatti it's makes It's entertaining. A uh, those, those scenes are scenes with Giamatti are entertaining. Uh, do Beale and Edward Norton have any chemistry? I didn't feel it. Does Edward Norton, like, he doesn't really open himself up to having chemistry with anybody in this movie. I think there, there's a huge age gap between the two. That's, that's one. And then I think Beale, I don't know what other movie she's done. This is the only movie that I know of her. Uh, she was a big deal in terms of like TV, but she really doesn't bring anything to the table for me. And and I feel like maybe a a better, different cast member, like even a Scar Jo, might have added she, a lot. She's not given a ton to do. I think that comes back to the director, this writer director. Yeah. Uh, of also, this I, as a side note, I wrote down this movie could have used to make it significantly better. A courtroom scene. It does feel procedural, and we lack some of those kind of organizational elements where you, you, you get to know all the pieces of the story. One of the other things about this movie is that the acts of magic are not believable. The, the funny thing about it is that the marketing of the movie said that every single thing was like a real, like it was not a special effect shot, which I find hard to believe. That orange tree is not real. That's what I thought, but the marketing of the movie says otherwise. Like, I believe that an illusion like that could have been possible. I don't believe that we saw it achieved practically in this movie. Yeah, that's what I thought too, but, you know, the marketing says otherwise. Because even, I was, I was talking to my partner Amy last night, and I, I said, you know, this tree, like this mechanical tree, it, it appears... I was like, and real fruit. I was like, how would you get real fruit? And she, she's smarter than I am. She said that he could take the fruit off the tree and then sleight of hand switch it with a real orange before he throws it to the audience. And I was like, okay, well, that's how you problem solve. That, how, that's how you engineer these tricks. In particular, the ghost slash apparition effect. And not just to the extent of the effect, but to the story, right? So that when Sophie appears... Side note, I love a little ghost child. Yeah. Give me a ghost child in any movie. 
I also appreciated in the movie that they did the uh, when Giamatti tries to figure out how he did the trick, and they did like a like a mock-up version, right? Which was really cool. And I was willing to go with Burger on this journey. That you know, this is what Norton's character is doing. But when the ghost child walks through the audience, it yeah. just took me right out. Oh, he yada 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 some of that stuff. He was like, this is kind of how you would do it. And then was just like, that's fine. Yeah. You know? And I was willing to buy in. And actually, he needs to take a lesson from the prestige where Ackerman says, give them a moment to doubt. Like, make them doubt. Yes. Which I think Neil Berger does not give us enough doubt. He, d- he refrains. We see Eisenheim handle a glass lens once. So he does not convincingly express to you how some of these effects would be achieved to the point where you're along for the ride. But not only that, for him to achieve the appearance of Sophie twice, and then the second time, the appearance of Eisenheim himself as like an apparition, they have to be there. There's no telecommuting to that performance. So story-wise... Ignoring the fact that I don't believe that this effect could be technically achieved, Eisenheim and Sophie have to be at the theater, which is filled and surrounded with officers of the law, and we get no indication of how they managed their escape. Yeah, it, it's uh, very unreal. Because I guess Neil Berger thinks it's going to be a reveal that Sophie is alive at the end. Even the, the the way that her murder, I'm doing finger quotes here for our audience, where we get a guy, we get a POV essentially of this, this unnamed gentleman, where she walks into the stables and then she comes out slumped over the horse and it's just like, all right, man, just show me all your cards at once, why don't you? Is Ed Norton the bad, the villain in this movie? I had the same thought. He I is the basically, right? These guys who are having an affair are tricking an entire community to get away with something. These guys are evil. These guys are villains. Did the crown prince deserve to die? I think this movie has a writing problem, a huge writing problem, which is that movies are interesting because of how personal conflicts intertwine with the larger... Yeah. Uh, outwardly worldly Which is conflict. a great, it's a great theme. You know? so, so in this movie, the elements are in place. Yeah. It's just they're not interacting in a very meaningful way. It's botched. Imagine if she actually died. Imagine if she died for real and Ed Norton was like, I need to get revenge against the crown prince. That is a much more interesting movie. Do you think that Ed Norton is purposely acting worse when he's pretending to mourn Sophie? <laughs> yeah, it was not, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> overacting? <laughs> Best overacting award for Norton? He's like, he's like, because he, he's like, I'm not Edward Norton, the great actor. I'm Eisenheim, the great magician. So my Who's acting, pretending to act. Right. So my acting should be worse here. <laughs> I hope that was his process. Yeah, yeah. It's heavy handed. It feels mismanaged. And the thing that kills me uh, <laughs> is that, that Chris Nolan uses... I gotta warn you that from now on on this podcast, I'm going to mention the names of of actors and 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 film professionals like they're my buddies, like they're my friends. The way that Chris Nolan uses the Tom York song to put a period on the Prestige, Neil Berger attempts to use butterflies to imply 
that the film that you just experienced was a successful emotional journey. But it's a major whiff. Uh, we're shooting down Burger, but let's uh, let's get to Nolan real quick. Wow. The Prestige is directed by a little-known director who goes by the name of Christopher Nolan. I did not need to see his IMDb page to write down this list. I'm just I just wrote this off of memory. Following Memento, Insomnia, Batman Begins, Dark Knight, Dark Knight Rises, Inception, Interstellar, Dunkirk, Tenet, and the upcoming Oppenheimer. I'm pumped. Is he the most important director of the 21st century? Yes. Here's another important question. Is there any Nolan movie in which the wife survives? He has a problem with women. I don't know if he has I don't know if he has a problem with women at large, but there's a problem uh with the way that women appear in his films or don't appear in his films. Is he kind of trying to give a hint to Emma Thomas about how he feels about their marriage? I mean, they've been together for a long time, so I feel like they've figured it out. The thing I'm talking about is Nolan movie wives are major plot point in a lot of his movies, and uh, they often don't survive. I think it's a little... Meme- th- sorry, Memento, Inception, yes. Interstellar, yes. Dunkirk, not sure. <laughs> Tenet, I think the the woman, she doesn't die, but there's definitely a a rough, uh, she gets beaten by her husband, and then we don't know what's going to happen in Oppenheimer. The dead wife is a shortcut to emotional relevance in in his mind. He's not writing all these films. He has a co-writing credit on Prestige, on The Prestige, which he doesn't always have. Yeah. By the way, we should also mention the stuff that he's produced. He's uh, you know, he's very tight with Warner Brothers and is a producer on every Superman film. He's a big Zack Snyder fan. <laughs> and he produces uh, all of Zack Snyder's movies. So he's, I swore, I was like, Man of Steel is going to be out of control if Chris Nolan thinks that Zack Snyder is the man to do it. <laughs> and Man of Steel is not terrible. It just wasn't, you know, the earth shattering experience I was looking for. Yeah. The kryptonic shattering experience I was looking for. You want to talk about Christopher Nolan's direction of The Prestige? I think it's flawless. It's got to be one of the most, I said this before, confidence. You got to have a lot of confidence. I think you should. I'm going to talk about it, but I feel like you started this thought earlier. The manipulation of time, which which I think he's a master at. I mean, there's a lot of things you have to have confidence for. Confidence in to make this film. That confidence in leveraging the different tracks of time without disorienting your audience or disrupting your understanding of like the emotional journey that the different characters are on, you've got not one, but two fake diaries in this movie that create unreliable narration. The characters who guide you through this movie are lying to you most of the time. It's a diary within a diary within a diary. And it never bothers you. It is, it is Memento Mary's Inception, and you get this movie. Memento was conceived to be edited in that reverse chapter way, right? Yes. There was never like, we're going to make this movie, and they stumbled on that in post. There's a great video on YouTube where Christopher Nolan himself gets on a blackboard and draws the sequential time loop of Memento, and then talks about how the movie was edited. You have to have so much confidence in your story to do a twist. I'm trying to think, what's a movie with a bad twist? 
The Illusionist. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the whole movie deflates when the twist doesn't hold up. And it's it's a high... Why does Giamatti laugh at the end when he discovers... He has figured out nothing. He had he figured out absolutely nothing. He doesn't know how the ghost thing happened. He doesn't know how Eisenheim and Sophie were there and escaped. All he figures out is that the man on the platform was also the guy who was like the post-mortem doctor for Sophie, which it's his own damn fault that he didn't recognize him in the moment. We can't go down that path. I hate that shot, the, the <laughs> rotating around Giamatti. Well, one he of my, smiles one of my, like an imbecile. One of my most memorable things about The Illusionist, I remember from the first time I watched the movie, is the locket. The locket that like opens and then opens again. And I was like, I would love to own this thing someday because I think it's a great thing to have. I've watched this movie a couple of times since then, and I don't think that mecha- those mechanics this work. This is the least... It important always, problem in that movie. It, it was always cut. Like, there's always a cut. You never show the full opening of that locket. And much like, this movie sucks. Actually, I mean, you've stumbled on, like, a really good metaphor with, for this film, which is, on the surface, it seems like it should work. If you think about it for five seconds, it doesn't work anymore. There you go. That's a perfect way to describe <sighs> you know, the illusionist. Trying to think about the good twist movies, right? Psycho, The Sixth Sense. The Others. The Village is a true twist. Yeah, yeah. I hate that movie. The for, Village? For its twist. The Village? Yeah. Really? To, it, it was the worst thing about the movie. And maybe it has to do with expecting a great twist out of Shyamalan. Imagine you're as, as gullible a film goer as me. It's a great movie. I, it was a great twist. I really liked the movie up until the point where the uh, Bryce Dallas Howard uh, jumps over the fence and comes to the modern I mean, world. that's a double. You get the double twist. The Prestige is also kind of a double twist. We get the, I guess it's kind of a head fake, the reveal that Fallon and, and Borden and vice versa are brothers, twins. And then we get the reveal that the machine that Tesla built was real and that Angier has been essentially copying himself over and over again. So we get double twist. I watched the movie kind of dumbstruck by the level of confidence it takes to put a character that looks like Fallon on screen within the first couple minutes and create create a story where people aren't going to put that together so fast. And throughout the movie, he shows doubles across the board. There's a great scene with the, with the kid who says, where is his brother? It's very early on in the movie. Cutter is telling you the whole time, he has a double. He has a double. That's the only way to do it because magic isn't real until it is. I feel like I want to talk about it more because of how insane it is to have this script in front of you and be like, this is what I'm going to show and this is what I'm going to leave out and it's all going to come together in the end. Yeah. The other great thing about The Prestige in terms of Nolan's direction is that there's there's a lot of handheld work in this movie. There's an incredible amount of handheld work for what is a period film. That really makes this entire place real and grounded Kind of like Batman Begins, like you are there with Bruce Wayne as he struggles through his story. And that choice has always benefited Nolan in every movie that he does. The camera is always in there with the characters and you are in the room with the characters making this place lived in, making this place come alive. 
I love that about Nolan. That's technical execution. And we talked about story and editing at large here. But he gets great performances. He gets great performances out of everybody. And it's one of those things that you can go back and appreciate more at your second, third, fourth, 18th rewatch. Because then you're like, which board am I looking at? I forget if you mentioned this on air or off air about how important Olivia is in terms of redirecting the plot and seeing how Sarah is reacting to which version of Borden and also who the hell is writing the paragraph in the diary that you are listening to at a given moment. Are they writing it together? There are so many pieces at play and uh, it, it is a house of cards that never wavers. The world in the prestige feels like a real place. The world in The Illusionist is like one, two, three, four, six locations that we just kind of circulate through. I doubt there's a better place to talk about this. So I feel like it's a, a good time to dive in. It's kind of like the filmmakers behind The Illusionist were like, Vienna is beautiful. Done. The art direction in The Prestige is out of control. Unbelievable. Every location feels so holistic and thought through from the floor to the ceiling, the way that it feels lived in. Sarah's first apartment with the door, with the paint peeling on the door, the theaters, how they get bigger as their acts grow. The, the Tesla devices. The devices, the mortuary where they buried Julia. You know what? A special mention to the bird cage mechanism that is uh, attached to the back of... Soup, soup. Yeah, it's awesome. The... Colorado Springs, the hotel, Tesla's entire lab, the balcony that they have sandwiches on. And that's not to mention the costuming. And, I, and of course, this is kind of a separate department, right? But there are so many costumes in this movie. Do you know how many vests Hugh Jackman wears in this movie? It's got to be like at least a dozen. 30 different vests. Oh, man. I just couldn't stop thinking about the wardrobe, watching it this time. There's so many choices being made, and nothing ever feels out of place, right? Angier is Lord Caldlow. He's always got money. He's always dressed, like, to the nines. He always looks great. You have Borden. He's coming up from nothing. He's basically wearing a potato sack at the beginning of the film. And then his look changes when Olivia shows up. Olivia polishes him up. Right. Olivia's wardrobe versus Sarah's wardrobe. Uh, and then you got Fallon. <laughs> Fallon is wearing the same costume throughout the entire film, which, again, should, you know, should have been another clue. Uh, one of my favorite things about this movie are... The posters that advertise the magician's performance. Hold that thought. Guys, this is not going to be an official category in this podcast, but for a moment I considered which movie does the posters of the magic show better? The Illusionist is fine. The posters advertising the performances for the professor, the, the posters advertising the performance of the great Danton are so much fun. I have no idea what the posters really looked like, but if they didn't look like that, then they missed out. The great Danton with like ghosts flying around him and, and then in big yellow letters, the new transported man. I get pumped. I get pumped for the performance. I love the name of the shows, the, the, the real transported man, the new transported man. No, it's, it's the transported man, the new transported man, and the real transported man. And there's also the original transported the man. The OG yeah. transported man. You know, this whole film is worse 
if the name for the trick isn't good. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I guess if I saw a movie that was called The Real Transported Man, that would have given away the prestige if the movie was called The Real Transported Man. I think The Prestige is a great title. We yeah. discussed that and you dashed my hopes. Uh, Christopher Nolan gets a point for The Prestige. Category 10. The best cinematography or best shot. The illusionist cinematographer is Dick Pope, who was nominated for an Academy Award for this film. He has done a lot of music videos, especially for Queen and Freddie Mercury, including I Want to Break Free. That's nice. I didn't know you could sing. The movies uh, that Dick Pope has shot are The Way of the Gun, which I enjoy, Man of the Year, Me and Orson Welles, Legend, which I enjoy, Motherless Brooklyn, which I also enjoy. And he's done quite a few features, but very few that are recognizable names. What do you think of Dick Pope's cinematography in The Illusionist, for which he was nominated for Best Cinematography at the Academy Awards? All right, little little side tangent here. Dick Pope shot The Way of the Gun. The Way of the Gun, directed by Chris McQuarrie. Chris McQuarrie is my indie band, who I was into before everybody else was. Chris McQuarrie wrote and won an Oscar for The Usual Suspects. Incredible movie. Wait, Chris McQuarrie wrote The Usual Suspects? Yes. And then I did not know that. He literally like couldn't get anything done. I don't know what I don't know what was going on, but couldn't get anything done. He makes this little neo noir movie called The Way of the Gun. It's got Ryan Phillippe, it's got Benicio del Toro, it's got James Caan, and it's a great movie. It's just a really, really, really fun movie. And then he like disappears, can't make anything, moves to Portland. Uh, he he's close with Brian Singer. Brian Singer problematic. Glad he's not around anymore. Um, it's sad because Brian Singer made some made cool some movies. cool movies. Uh, yeah, I wish people could just like and behave themselves and have some respect for other people. But I digress. Brian Singer brings him back to assist with Valkyrie. He does some like late and onset rewriting for Valkyrie, which I think is a really good movie. Um, and that's, <laughs> I'm sorry. What? <laughs> and that's where uh, he meets Tom Cruise. I, I'm, I'm laughing. I'm laughing at what Michael just I'm said. I'm blown by this. I'm, I, don't, I don't care. I said what I said. Uh, and that's where he meets Tom Cruise. And then Chris McQuarrie becomes Tom Cruise's guy. He does, I don't know, credited or uncredited, I'd forget, rewrites on Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. And then he writes Edge of Tomorrow and writes and directs the last two and upcoming two Mission Impossible movies. So now everybody's on about Mr. Christopher McQuarrie. Oh, and he co- and he, he produced and did a writing pass on Top Gun Maverick. Chris McQuarrie. American treasure. Right. Dick Pope shot the way of the gun. Go watch the way of the gun. It's crazy to me that he was nominated for an Oscar for shooting The Illusionist. It looks fine, but there's like heavy vignetting throughout. If you, people don't know, what, can you describe what vignetting is? Uh, basically, the edge of the frame are kind of black, and they and the 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 black kind of grades into the rest of the yeah, image. The corners of the frame are going to be darker, and they're going to be out of focus more, which mimics an older lens look, a less like with science and technology now, we don't see this as as a natural effect 
created by light coming through a lens and, and hitting film, but in earlier days of cinema and the development of lenses, the center of the lens was going to be sharper and brighter than the edges. If you if you go on your iPhone and take a photo and go to the effects thing, you can actually you can add click vignette. on vignette and you can control if it's a black vignette or a white vignette and the intensity and spread of the vignette very easily now, all digitally. I guess that could have been achieved in The Illusionist in camera. They could have it, it done... It was. Like, uh, so the reason why his work was so noticed in this particular movie was because a lot of the lighting choices were practical fixtures of the time. Mm. So kind of like the Barry Lyndon thing where they lit everything with candles. It was kind of like that thing where he kind of really went and in, dove into without using the actual lighting that is available uh, to modern cinema and he just used lights that were around at the time that the movie is set in. I think I wish that everybody who worked on The Illusionist did not take the film so seriously. It's not a good enough script to pretend that filmmaking or going to see films should not be fun. I would say that the film looks great. But I would also say that the rest of the departments, including the directing, the editing, do not complement the cinematography. No. So therefore, Dick Pope's work is slashed at the knees by the other departments. And I do want to mention, Dick Pope is a pretty constant collaborator of Mike Lee. And Mike Lee is one of, let's say, most consistent contributor to uh, American independent films that we have. He's made a lot of movies, Secrets and Lies, Vera Drake, uh, Happy Go Lucky, Another Year, Mr. Turner, um, All or Nothing, there are reasons to watch every one of his films. And like he's one of those guys that nobody will give money to make a film anymore because he makes small movies, you know? A- and he makes films. Like, he's not a TV guy. Um, he's he, an indie filmmaker. Yeah. And if you love, but if you love films and you don't know Mike Lee, Dick Pope works with Mike Lee. Check out his movies. Let's talk about Wally Pfister. Wally Pfister? I call him Pfister. Is it Pfister? Pfister? So Wally Pfister is a name I love because I love Nolan movies, and I've been familiar with his name for a long time because of Nolan. So he shot every Nolan movie up until... He did not shoot the following, but since Memento, he shot everything uh, between Memento and The Dark Knight Rises. And then not Dunkirk. After that, Nolan started working with other cinematographers. Uh, I think he works with the guy who shot um, Nope. Van Hoyt, is that his name? Van Hoyt. Who's a great cinematographer, by the way. If you guys haven't seen Ad Astra, check out that movie for its incredible, incredible cinematography. If you have not slept well in a long time, <laughs> put on Ad Astra. The cinematography of that film is incredible. What I love about Wally is that, oh, by the way, he also did the Italian job in Moneyball. In case <laughs> you didn't know. <laughs> Oh, okay. I feel like we need a we need um like a special sound effect whenever Moneyball gets mentioned. Moneyball is one of my top ten favorite films. I've decided it's official. Where do you land on the Italian job? I feel like it's one of those uh, one of those awesome movies that will live on for a long time. I watched it not too long ago, and it's extraordinarily dated. It, really, it has aged terribly. Oh my god! Ugh. The motivation of Seth Green's character is twofold. In, I can't believe we're talking about this. One, he resents the fact as portrayed in the movie that the man who we all know as starting the, the company Napster, 
which was a way that people downloaded. No, no, I get it. Ille- I get it. Well, uh, we have, might have young listeners out there who don't know what these things are. So Napster was the way that you could download music illegally in like the early days of the internet. And the Italian job presupposes that Seth Green's character was the actual inventor of that. And the man who we all know in the real world as the inventor, Sean something, stole it from him. This theft is reenacted in the film. His other motivation is to have enough money to purchase stereo equipment that is loud enough to blow women's clothes off. So the film, near the end of the film, Seth Green is hosting a young lady at his home, and it is implied that he, without her consent, blows her clothes off. These are two actual scenes from a major motion picture. You yourself said that things age poorly in older movies, which is true. I and mean, in this case, it does. That, but the was Italian a job, poor, that was a poor choice the day it came out. The Italian job is the reason why Mini Cooper is what it is as a brand. Hoyt van Hoytema. I knew we were shortchanging his name. Hoyt van Hoytema, great cinematographer. Yeah, did, this, did Dunkirk, amongst Let's, lots of other things. We have gone off track a lot here. Let's yes. get back to Feister. Wally Feister, I, what I love about his work in all of the movies that he's done with Nolan is that... Like a good scorer, he's, a, he's the type of DP that supports the story incredibly. You never notice his work. It's, it's all there to serve the story. And it, there's nothing standout-ish about it. I would say like, there, are, there are a couple of moments which are standout, like when um, all the globes light up on the ground. I had a hard time, to your point here, and you're, you're welcome to pick up your point where you, you left off. What is great cinematography versus what is great art direction Mm. and i mean uh along with the score right where we said the score it's not stand out but it serves the movie that might be the way to describe the majority of departments and talent working on the prestige prestige. yeah yeah they all complement each other very nicely except for you know stand out would be jonathan nolan and chris nolan John Nolan and Chris Nolan for their writing and uh, Chris Nolan for his direction and the editing of the film, which probably editing probably defines the film more than anything. Yeah. If I were to give best editing between these two movies, it would clearly be uh, the prestige. But that's to say the cinematography is extremely functional, but the places where it does stand out, we talked about the scene with Angier and Root, where they are acting like they cannot technically achieve two Hugh Jackmans on screen, and then they do. Yeah, same with Borden. We see Borden's twin towards the reveal of the movie. Same thing. They're in their frame right next to each other, interacting with, with each other, handheld work. In the way that, I'm trying to, what was our previous, what was, what was the last episode we did? Uh, Upgrade and Venom. I was trying to think of why I started railing on the inability to let the camera sit still in The Last of Us. Because I've, you, you, you do I've that complained about episode. that in every episode. And you know, this, this th- is the inverse. This is the inverse where the camera is still when it should be still. The camera is in motion when it should be in motion. There was a shot when Angier is reading the note that um, Tesla left for him, right? And it's a really subtle jib lift. He is in the nice room at the hotel, the box is behind him, and the camera just kind of lifts as he's reading, you know, this note. It adds a a depth and level of visual complexity 
to a moment that the director knows is going to be voiceover. There is just amazing connection of ideas between the directing and the cinematography that elevate this film throughout. And uh, I'll say this right now. I am not as big a fan of Nolan post The Dark Knight Rises than I was before it. And the reason I think is that Wally Pfizer and Nolan is one of those partnerships that just clicks. It's so beautiful together. Pfizer goes on to become a director after Dark Knight Rises. He does one of the worst movies I've ever seen, Transcendence with Johnny Depp. Oh, no. And he has not shot a movie since then. Oh, no. And he's officially like in the DGA, Directors Guild of America now. I mean, there's a whole crew here, right? Like, I, I, I got to go back and look now. But Jonathan Nolan wrote Memento. And you got the same guy doing the score for these first five or six movies of Chris Nolan. And you got Wally Pfister, Feister, Wally, our boy Wally, he's shooting all these movies, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's a, a crazy talented group of guys who stuck together for a long time here. This team up, Wally Feister, Nolan team up, is the team up that came up with, hey, we can have a movie with 35 millimeter film and IMAX in the same movie. They, that was not done before The Dark Knight came out. And these guys are just brilliant together. And it, it's a shame that they don't work together anymore. I want to give this to Feister. What do you think? No doubt. Not only because of his great work on The Prestige, but because he was the second unit director of photography for Mouse Hunt, which is a film that's <laughs> is extremely that important to me. If you guys have not watched Mouse Hunt, uh, great movie. Gore Verbinski at his best. And while we were talking about cinematography, I was reluctant to give this to Pfizer at first because in The Prestige, they use spotlights yeah. the entire time, like which are xenon they're not the right color light. The xenon lighting was not invented till the 1940s. So my complaint against it was all of this lighting. But then I did a little bit more research and spot lighting was actually invented by the 1870s. And I think the timeline of this movie is 1890s. So I will give him a pass for that reason. Had spotlighting not existed, I think that would have been a huge point against Pfizer and would lean the movie back towards all right so wally fister fans just put your swords down ht is comfortable with the use of spotlights in the prestige for wally pfizer prestige takes the point category 11 best quote slash best dialogue in these movies for the illusionist i have jimari says i have served on the edge of it for many many years and i can assure you there's no trick they haven't seen Leopold says, he tries to trick you. I try to enlighten you. Which is the more noble pursuit? And then... Boo. What a nerd. One of my favorites is, are you completely corrupt? And Giamatti says, no, not completely, no. Those are my nominees from uh, The Illusionist. Do you have anything to add? Yeah, there were two interactions uh, that I highlighted here. Yule says, uh, promise me you won't do it again. Eisenheim says, I promise you, you'll enjoy the show. Oh, I think Eisenheim says, uh, you got the wrong man. And Yule says, you don't know that. And Eisenheim says, no, but you do. Because he is smarter than everybody. Neil Berger has awful writing. This is tough. It's tough to go through like a whole movie and be like, there's not one one-liner. Yeah. The, the monologue that uh, Eisenheim has was kind of good, you know, where, where he's talking about time. You know, I thought about that because he says like, wouldn't we all like to slow down a beautiful moment? It's almost like cheating because he's doing it on stage. Like I would compare it to what I will highlight in this category, which is Angier's final monologue that's for us right like that's for us as the audience and the 
thing that you're talking about was for the audience who's attending Eisenheim's show. Yeah, and I think in that scene, Ed Norton makes it possible and believable and entertaining. It's just not, it's not meant to be realistic. Let's uh, talk about dialogue in Prestige. Let's. Uh, I have Borden says, this is probably my favorite one, never show anyone. They'll beg you and they'll flatter you for the secret, but as soon as you give it up, you'll be nothing to them. That's a good line. I love Nikola Tesla. I don't know if you want me to read this whole thing, but I'll do it anyway. Uh, I apologize for leaving you without saying goodbye, but I seem to have outstayed my welcome in Colorado. The truly extraordinary is not permitted in science and industry. Perhaps you'll find more luck in your field where people are happy to be mystified. You will find what you're looking for in this box. Ali has written you a thorough set of instructions. I add only one suggestion on using the machine. Destroy it. Drop it in the bottom of the deepest ocean. Such a thing will bring you only misery. Cutter, after Fallen, after Fallon shoots through the casket, says, Saves me cutting you an air hole. <laughs> That's uh, definitely, is it, it might be his most emotive moment in the whole. I, li- uh, I laughed, I laughed. Uh, Borden, <laughs> Borden says, when he realizes that Fallon is buried, he says, Alive? And Angier, as he walks away, says, How fast can you dig? If I'm stepping, I don't know if you have how many of you left. No, I'm, I'm, I mean, that's, there, there's a lot of really, there's a lot of great moments of dialogue. Angier, many of you may be familiar with this technique, but for those of you who aren't, do not be alarmed. What you're about to see is considered safe. Considered safe. Ackerman, we'll have to dress it up a little. Disguise it. Give them enough reason to doubt it. I really like the idea that there is... A talent manager who's just been around long enough that he's like, I've met some f-ing wizards, man. Like, I know that this can get really real. Do you have any nominees for the prestige? <clears throat> I have a couple here. Um, Angier. I never thought I'd find an answer at the bottom of a pint glass. Cutter hasn't stopped you from looking, has it? And that's coupled with, it's a great visual. Tesla says, uh, Mr. Angier. Have you considered the cost of such a machine, Angier? Price is not an object, Tesla. Perhaps not, but have you considered the cost? David Bowie is incredible in this movie. He's so fun. So fun that he's in this movie. And then, uh, oh man, we're going to have to decide, depending on how this goes, we'll decide whether it stays in or it gets cut. May I present to you Angier's final monologue? Go for it. You never understood why we did this. The audience knows the truth. The world is simple. It's miserable. Solid all the way through. But if you could fool them, even for a second, then you can make them wonder. And then you... Then you got to see something really special. You really don't know. It was... It was the look on their faces... I gave myself chills. Yeah, yeah. My, <laughs> Michael, uh, Michael really emotes these things. And uh, you know what? That was pretty good. On camera, I'd want a second take, but uh, we, we can print it. I love the movie The Prestige, and I can watch it through and through and pick it up any time throughout the movie. The part of the movie that I could just walk away from is the ending. Is the is the is the yeah, is this yeah. monologue? I'm with you there. Yeah, it is really important though. In terms of reframing Angier for us, just as the movie ends, 
Yeah. We're so far away from him losing his wife. Like, we forget that both of these guys started with good intentions that got derailed by their competing ambitions and that they are different. They have different approaches and different outlooks, which is, you know, I guess at the core what what this movie is about. And the idea that Borden was really doing it for himself or that the Bordens were creating magic for something that aligns much more with, with what seems to be Eisenheim's motivation, right? Which is like, I'm going to fool you and feel good about that. And that Angier's motivation is, is much more like Chris Nolan's. I'm going to show you something that took a lot out of me. And what I get out of it is, is to see you enjoy it. Michael and I are both filmmakers. And uh, uh, Michael and I have both made some projects over the years. We sometimes get an opportunity where our work, we get to watch a live audience watch our work. And the satisfaction of, you know, the laugh or the emotion that the audience has out of your work. It's, There's no price you can put it's on that. Specifically, it, it's, it's when you intended for someone to laugh and they do laugh. Yeah. That is, it is hard to describe the satisfaction you get out of that. Well, I mean, for me, this is a, I think I this mean, is for the prestige. I mean, just pick a line from the prestige. I, wanna, I, I, I think it's a Nikola Tesla monologue where he says, destroy the machine. I disagree, but I don't care. <laughs> Give it to the prestige. Put it on the board. Category 12. Which movie gets the good time at the movies award? Can we just uh, make this the shortest category ever and just say this pre- it's the prestige? Say it. It's the prestige. Let's take a break. Let's get to the mystery thriller movie genre-specific categories. Category 13. Which movie has the best moment of suspense? The Illusionist has a couple of them. Uh, we should pick one. Uh, there's... <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, there's a genuine lack of, of enthusiasm for, for talking about The Illusionist going on right now. I mean, I, I really enjoy the movie. I actually do enjoy the movie. And I think in a world where the prestige did not exist... Yeah, the people would think would more fondly about The Illusionist. There's a scene when Giamatti sees something shiny in the horse's haystack. Is that a moment of suspense? I boiled it down to the scene where, is the crown prince going to shoot Chief Inspector Yule, or is he going to shoot himself? Oh, okay. What about when uh, crown prince is uh, visiting the show where Jessica Biel's ghost appears and says, uh, you know, my killer is... Yeah, I guess I never feel like someone's life is at stake until the end, which is another issue with the movie. Yeah, like no real danger. Yeah. When I think of suspense thriller, and that's... We're playing with the category here a little bit. I think both of these films could be considered straight dramas, if you think about it. No, I think Prestige is 100% a thriller. It's more a thriller than it is a suspense. Okay, I uh, guess, you know, when I think of suspense thriller, I think of, like, the movie Double Jeopardy with Ashley Judd. There's a moment where a gun is pointed. So um, that's my pick for The Illusionist, is just before the the crown prince uh, blows his crown off. Okay. For The Prestige, I have when Angier decides to turn on the machine, you know, holds a gun and then turns on the machine, and then he steps into the machine. And then also when Angier goes to shoot Warden scene as an honorable mention. But I think my pick is when Angier decides to step into the machine. 
What do you think? Uh, what do you you think? know, I, I feel like the craft of the film in that moment doesn't indicate suspense so much. Oh, I see I what like you mean. in another film that maybe had less going on. So you think that the moment is of actual suspense, but the way it's directed does not scream suspense. Right. I was trying to think if there are any of those slow boil moments. I think when Julia is doing the water tank trick and we are waiting, you know, to, to see how it's going to pan out, that, oh, that's yeah. a moment of suspense. Yeah, I'm with that. What do you think of when uh, Angier shoots Borden's hand? Yeah, I mean, I think if we are trying to find a comparable scene, uh, we have a gun being pointed. Angier goes there to kill Borden. I mean, he... Yeah, he just wants a confession before the killing. He accidentally shoots his fingers off. He wants to shoot him in the chest. Yeah, I mean, that seems like a fair comparison. I feel like I want to give points to the illusionist for the things that work. And that, that scene does work. That is a pretty good scene in the movie. But The Prestige does a really good job of laying the groundwork for you to understand this is how the bullet catch works and this is the potential danger. Now that I'm thinking about it, I feel like I did regard Borden explaining to Sarah at the end of their conversation. So Sarah says, if I don't know how to do it, then you can't do it. So he explains it to her. And then at the end of the conversation, even though his motivation is to assuage her anxiety, to calm her nerves, he says, you know, but it only takes one one lunatic to put a button or a marble or, God forbid, a bullet in there. And she makes a face at him. Now that I'm thinking about it, that feels clumsy. He's saying that because the script and the story needs him to say that so that we, the audience, understand that a potential danger is that someone could come out of the audience and put a bullet in the gun. I will counter with this, which is that there's a big flaw in The Prestige, which is that why can't Borden and Fallon tell Sarah what's really happening? And the only scene that addresses that concern is the scene where he shows Sarah the trick and she's unimpressed and dismissive. So if you're saying why can't the brothers explain to Sarah that they are brothers. Ah, yeah, we're twins. This is our trick. This is our livelihood, and therefore the world cannot know about this trick. Um, and, and you're not saying, like, they don't need any sort of polyamorous relationship. They would just include her in on the thing. Because they are, I mean, the answer is because they are stuck up like Ed Norton is Eisenheim. They think they're smarter than everybody. And it is a character revelation at the end for the Borden that is, is going to be killed, that he says half a life was enough for us. It wasn't enough for everybody else. They thought that they were so, their personalities were so outsized that a half of their life would be enough to share with other people. So where are we at right now? So what I'm saying is, <laughs> what I'm saying is that that scene where he reveals a trick to Sarah and Sarah is like, oh, all right, whatever. I feel like if he told her that he has a twin brother, with which he does the trick. I mean, he already played the teapot trick on her where he was in the apartment. So she thinks he's magic. He, he can't destroy that illusion. <laughs> so um, which scene is better? Well, uh, wait, I mean, we, we got to be honest, right? We got to play this straight. The, the scene in The Illusionist works better. In terms of suspense? Yeah. The scenes that we have identified here as being the most suspenseful, the scene in The Illusionist works better. Are you just trying to give a point to The Illusionist? No, I'm just trying to play it fair here. I also think, I think that scene, I think we may have shortchanged the King Arthur trick, the sword on the floor, 
scene. Oh. I do think we pulled the strings to give that point to the prestige because the King Arthur trick, that's a great scene. It's also very suspenseful. So there are a couple of great scenes, maybe two in the illusionist which deserve their due respect. Right. I'm I'm comfortable giving the point to the to the illusionist here. Yeah. I did I did feel like the crown prince was going to shoot him for real. Yeah, it was great. And like I said, it could have been more subtle, but they really let it stew for a minute. So that point goes to the illusionist. Let's get to category 14, the second of the genre specific categories. Which movie has the best misdirection? Now, mystery movies, mystery thriller movies live on misdirection case in point the others you know has a great reveal at the end obviously the sixth sense now what makes a very satisfying misdirection is not only the audience finding something out but also the characters in the movie finding something out and i think in the spirit of this podcast it has to be how the characters in the movie are being misdirected is what we should be looking at Tell me your example from The Illusionist so I I have a better understanding. In The Illusionist, the misdirection is when Ed Norton plants Jessica Biel's dead body in the water. Do you have any other nominees or an opposition to that? The ghosts. Are they misdirection, though? Well, they're not real. Okay. He does admit that they're not real. Mm. But I guess he admits that they're not real in a way that the audience could say, like, well, he's saying they're not real, so he doesn't get arrested. But they're they're real. I see them. And then... The evidence is planted. All the evidence of the crime is planted. The emeralds, the jewels taken off the sword, the locket. Which makes that scene with the sword even more important because that's perhaps when he stole the jewels. Or at least he became aware of them enough that he knew that they could be used as evidence. It seems like a terrible thing for a sword. Do you have jewels? Seems like it makes it a worse sword. Maybe it's a it's a more yeah, like a decorative. show sword. Yeah, but I'll agree with you that the body is kind of the key misdirection, and this might be just kind of a personal nitpick. But I don't like when I find out that characters in films are secretly wonderful effect makeup people. Mm. That dagger gouge on her neck. Very convincing. There's a moment in The Hunger Games where we are supposed to believe that Peta's cake decorating ability has translated into his ability to create full face makeup that makes him look like a rock. Do you recall this moment? Honestly, I only know it because I watch a YouTube channel called Everything Wrong With Movies. Yeah. And I have not actually seen the movie, but I know what you're talking it's about. It's a wild request from the filmmakers for the audience to believe that he goes from cake boss to Phil Tibbet. Okay, so we'll say the body, right? The body. Agreed. I think that's the best, uh, you know, misdirection towards the characters in the movie uh, that exists in the world of that movie. All right, so for the prestige. The entire movie is misdirection. And it's so beautifully done. Like, you're looking at the trick the entire time, but you don't know that you're looking at the trick and you don't realize it till the very end. But for the characters in the movie... I nominate Borden sends Angier off to America for a very long time using his magic diary that Olivia hands to Angier. The diary is misdirection. The entire diary is misdirection for Angier. I think I said this earlier, right? Both diaries are misdirection. Yeah. So I guess Borden believes, hmm, hmm. We also have a body here, right? Because I was like, is it odd that Borden believes that Angier's diary is real when he did the fake diary trick to Angier. But he believes that Angier's diary is real 
because Angier is dead. Oh. Supposedly. Mm, yeah. And Cutter believes that Angier is dead because he saw his body on a slab. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty... I mean, I like the diaries. You know, in terms of misdirection, I like the diaries. But the notion that many characters throughout the film say, it's a double. It's a double. Oh, Cutter says, it's a double. Sarah's nephew says, where's his brother? Olivia says, I've seen the makeup. I've seen the wigs. It's not used in the act. He uses a double. Everybody is like, Angier, you're an idiot. <laughs> Uh, the reason I uh, nominated the diary is because Borden sends him away for w- what we presume is like at least a couple of years. It's a great prank. It's a great prank. He's reading the journal, right? And then, yeah, he's in the restaurant. And he's, he's like, wait a goddamn minute. And he skips to the end and he's like, that's right, Angier. I gave Olivia this. And, and Angier is just like, son of a... So, yeah, I nominated that. Do you agree? I love it, yeah. Right. And uh, <laughs> I, I think mean, it's almost as good. I mean, it's, it's actually, it's probably better than the second time where, oh, and only because it's not original now, right? Where Angier's writing in his, his book and Borden's reading. He's like, that's right. You, Borden, who are in prison for my murder. Borden's just like, what the? <laughs> 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 Great pranks. All right. This is this is an easy point for the press team. So right. Let's give it to it. The other great thing here is like we love the Tesla character, but he does Angier so dirty. He's like, yeah, okay. This guy thinks he's here because he he thinks I made a machine for somebody else. He's got a ton of cash. Let him think that, you know, because he says later, like, you lied to me. And Ali's like, nobody ever lied to you. Angier literally said, I spent a small fortune. Yeah. Yeah, and Tesla is just like, let this guy think what he thinks. Let's go to category 15, the third of the genre-specific categories. Which movie had the best plot twist? Now, this is the bread and butter of any mystery thriller. Michael, is this even a debate? Uh, Let's just identify the twists, right? So the twist is Sophie is not actually dead, right? Yeah. There are two twists in The Prestige. One Borden is two people, and the other, that Tesla's machine that he made for Angier creates copies of Angier's physical self. Yeah. Both of those are better than The Illusionist. And you know what? I guess this movie qualifies as science fiction as well. It's a lot of things. Yeah. It's yeah. a lot of things. It's drama, mystery, it's science fiction. It's a period piece. It's yeah. got romance. Oh, my God. I just want to go back home and rewatch this movie again. A few beers, a few laughs. Troubles are over. For the best plot twist, let's give the point to The Prestige. The next section of this podcast is the twin movie special categories. Now, this is the genesis of the podcast. And uh, I think we mentioned this in episode one, that the reason I came up to you that, hey, I want to do this podcast is because of these two movies. You wanted to talk about these two movies. (laughs) Yeah. So these are categories that only apply to these two movies because of the very specific things that they both have in them. Broadly, these movies are about the obsession of a magician exacting revenge on the man that took his woman. Uh, Let's get more surgical though. Category 16. Which movie has the better stagehands that keep things discreet for a protagonist? In The Illusionist, we have Asian stagehands, presumably Asian immigrants in Vienna, that are willing to take down people who try to come into the shop, and they they definitely do not cooperate with the police. In The Prestige, Angier's stagehands are all blind, 
so they cannot witness the trick. At one point, when somebody's breaking into Angier's shop, the blind man goes, who's there? And that is kind of what the stagehands are in each movie. What do you think? Which movie has the better stagehands? To Cutter's point, the blind stagehands are a wonderful marketing trick. Very clever. On the other hand, not so effective against intruders. There is a blind stagehand sitting within 10 feet of the watery tomb that Angier gets trapped in, unable to help. Borden makes his way past a a, a stagehand fully equipped with sight, with little to no fight. But if anybody tries to sneak into uh, Eisenheim's theater, uh, they get tackled and they get thrown out the front door like a Muppet. Yeah. So, yeah, in terms of effectiveness... I think you got to give it to the uh, uh, Eisenheim's team and the Illusionist. I agree with you. They're a great team. Those are the type of people you want guarding your property. The point goes to the Illusionist. Good category, HT. Good category. Category 17. Which movie has the better reuniting with the manager and telling them not to see the backstage scene? In the Illusionist, Eisenheim, towards the end of the movie, gives all of his property to his manager before doing his last performance. In The Prestige, Angier brings back Cutter for the last run of his 100 shows, but he tells him, never come backstage. Which movie did it better, Michael? I like the gentleman who plays um, Yosef, the assistant in, uh, in The Illusionist. Eddie Marzan plays Yosef Fisher. He's Eisenheim's assistant in The Illusionist. He's got a hundred film credits. He's a that guy. And he's great in this movie. He's very entertaining in this movie. The performance that I recalled when I saw his face was he's an inspector in um, Guy Ritchie's Sherlock Holmes movies with Robert Downey Jr. I like those movies a lot. On the other hand, you have Cutter, played by Michael Caine. Who did a great job as a character in the movie. And I really believe Cutter feels like he has a real relationship with the people around him, with Angier and with Borden. I think this movie... The Prestige excels. And you know what? This Let me tell you this. This is a criticism of Christopher Nolan. All of his leading men, you know, like the character of Leo DiCaprio in Inception. Like in all of Nolan's movies, it's always this uh, traumatized white man who kind of looks like Nolan. I, I know you might counter argue with Tenet, but I would also argue that the villain in the movie is more a stand-in of that traumatized white man, you know, with a tough relationship with his wife, which is a trope in almost every Nolan movie. So Nolan has this character that is a central character in all of his movies, and The Prestige is actually an exception, which is kind of why it is one of my favorite, if not the favorite Nolan movie, where these people are not the typical traumatized, solo-leading white man in a Christopher Nolan movie. All of these people feel real, with real relationships, interacting with the world in a very real way, which is more than what I can say for every other Nolan movie. In The Illusionist, the crown prince says something to Chief Inspector Yule that is to the effect of, I thought you were a man I could count on. I thought you were a man who, when I asked to do something, you would do it. John Cutter, in The Prestige, is that man. He is a confidant. He is a conscious manager of your interests. Like when he works for you, he works for you or with you until he finds out that you have faked your death 
and you are going to cause a young, innocent girl to be fatherless. But he's with you up until that point. So I think it's pretty clear that uh, John Cutter from The Prestige is the manager you want on your team. That's not the question, though. What was the, what was the question? Which movie has the better reuniting with the manager and telling them not to see the backstage seat? Oh, I, it's still the prestige. I love the, we get the card. We get the, we get the second appearance of the card at the bottom of the glass. We get the introduction of the blind stage hands. We get the rundown theater. And, you know, we get the, the start of this, this building of the mystery of, like, why only 100 performances? I mean, it's a, it's a great part of the movie. The interaction between the manager and Eisenheim it's indicative of the relationship that Eisenheim has with everyone, which is the relationship goes as far as they are useful to Eisenheim and not one step further. Happy to give it to Sir Michael Caine here. Category 18, the third of the twin movie-specific categories. Which movie has the best disguise worn by the main character to fool the second main character? So in The Illusionist, it's in the very last scene where Ed Norton has... A disguise uh, when he steals a locket from the pocket of Giamatti. In the Prestige, Angier Angier disguises himself to shoot a bullet at Borden. <laughs> well, that's funny. I thought you were gonna. I thought it was going to be the Fallon makeup, but it's the Angier makeup. Okay. I would say with the Fallon makeup, Fallon would obviously win. Yeah. But this is, you know, when talking about the similarities, it's about the main character putting on a disguise. I'm a little tired of, like, beating the dead horse that is the illusionist here. But the fake beard that Edward Norton is wearing at the end of The Prestige is ludicrous. I mean, he, for some reason, decided that he was going to be a redhead. And I think any Irishman trotting around Vienna at that time period, is going to raise a few eyebrows. Um, so I, I think on several fronts, he was misguided in his selection of fake facial hair. And Gier's look, it's not his best look. Yeah, it's kind of like, uh, I was surprised that Fallon, uh, Fallon let it through. This, that is the problem. There is no way, there is no way that Fallon doesn't recognize him. Because it's not somebody else on stage that lets this guy through. Right. It's Fallon, Fallon picks him. I was thinking about the same thing when Borden gets on stage and he messes up the dove cage trick. Mm-hmm. I guess it kind of makes sense to me because Olivia was picking the person who would come up. And I also felt like I saw her point to somebody, that person stand up, and Borden also stand up and just kind of walk in front of the guy. Like That kind of shows Borden's character. Right. And I, I mean, that seems the most plausible way to do it. But for one of the Borden brothers to point at Angier in the crowd and say, you, you're the guy. you the guy that looks like my enemy. Come on. Yeah, in. you. And I mean, it's not that good a disguise. This is tough because Ed Norton's beard is out of control terrible uh I also, I also want to say this that uh lord call called low called low he comes to the jail and the prison and if i don't know if they had printed papers at the time they, yeah. should, they must have in the 1890s i mean you can see it's the same guy and not one of those guards is a fan of the great danton the guy in prison is screaming that that's the man that i'm accused of killing yeah and he had a diary in his possession that says hey by the way you are in jail for my murder. There was enough in there. In Angier's own handwriting, as Owen says. Yeah, yeah. This is, you know what? You are right about the ridiculous beard that Norton has. 
However, the stuff that we just talked about just just doesn't add up for uh, my I man Angier. I, I almost feel like this is a no points awarded moment. I would say this this kind of shows Angier's incompetence to be able to put on a good disguise. It mostly shows Fallon's incompetence at facial recognition. This is illusionist. Despite Fallon's issue here, the Angier beard at least looks like a human beard. It looks common. Yeah, but it's not as bad as the Ed Norton beard. You know what? I Ed I, Norton has also got like a pillow like stuffed in his shirt to make him chunky. I do not mind his beard that much. As much as you did. Maybe maybe you're you know, you were so disappointed with the movie that you were just nitpicking all of maybe these. Maybe I things. was distracted, a lost in Paul Giamatti's big smile. You know what? Whatever you want. <laughs> If you want to give it to the illusionist, we can give it to the illusionist. I think the illusionist has just a slight edge here. If you told me 24 hours ago that this award was going to the illusionist, I would have not believed you. But here we are. Category 19. Which movie has the best drowning of the protagonist's love interest? I mean, there's only one true drowning here. Oh, you know, let's let's imagine that we don't know that Beale did not... Did not, in fact, I mean, we already, you know, I feel like we already poked fun a little bit about Edward Norton's poor performance, mourning his presumed deceased love. To contrast that, Julia's death is wonderfully crafted. We, it, has, it has suspense. It has production design. It great has, production design. It has all of the main actors in the movie in one scene. It's great. We see the trick done correctly. So we get a sense of like the tempo and uh, has a really, really, really great little subtle moment of acting from Michael Caine. The first time they do the water trick, and it goes well, and he puts the axe down. And there's just this shift in his face, like from tension to calm. And, and that speaks to Nolan's direction of the scene, too. The prestige is just filled with moments like that. So this is pretty cut and dry yeah. for a water death. It's the prestige. Whatever happened to Piper Parabo? I want to see her in movies. She has I like her. Yeah. I like her. This is the end of all of the categories, Michael. And before we get into the final tally, let's recap real quick. Are you ready for the recap? Ready. Category one, which movie won the release date? The Illusionist. Category two, which movie won the box office? The Prestige. Category three, which movie has the better title? This was the uh, the double ace up the sleeve, uh, and ultimately the point went to The Illusionist. Category four, which movie has the better leading actor? The Prestige. Category five, which movie has the best rest of the cast? Also The Prestige. Category six, which movie has the best best scene? Also The Prestige. Category seven. Which movie has the best title drop, which is when a movie's name is stated in a scene? The Illusionist. Category 8. The best music moment slash needle drop. Philip Glass took another point for The Illusionist. Category 9. Best director slash which movie was directed better? My buddy Chris Nolan takes the point for The Prestige. Category 10. The best cinematography slash shot. That's Wally for uh, The Prestige gets the point. Category 11, the best quote slash best dialogue. Also The Prestige. Category 12, 
which movie gets the good time at the movies award? <laughs> uh, uh, it's the prestige. I love the name of that category. I'll, I'll say this, though, that... Uh, All I want in life, H, is a place to call home, a loving partner, a blonde dog, and a good time at the movies. I uh, just want to say this. The Illusionist, I think, is a better date movie. The Illusionist is not sexy. Of <laughs> Wait, no. <laughs> the Prestige is a lot of things. It is not sexy. Oh, wait. <laughs> Did you mess it up twice? What? No, I'm just... There's a lot of good-looking people in The Prestige. Yeah, I love Rebecca Hall. Scar Joe. And uh, what's the name of the girl who drowns? Piper Parabo. She's awesome, too. I mean... Was Hugh Jackman not the sexiest man alive at some point? Has he never not been? I would, He's always been. I don't know, but like, well, that's like, it's like a People Magazine thing, right? I would bet, I would bet $5,000 that he was. No, that's a lot. I'm not that confident. $4,000. I would bet $4,000 that he was the sexiest man alive. People's, uh, like People's Magazine. Let me go to the internet. 2008. Just the one time? Yeah, I, 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 well, that's all I need. Category 13, the first of genre-specific categories. Which movie has the best moment of suspense? The Illusionist. Really? Yeah, it was the gun pointed. Uh, the gun pointing uh, at uh, our buddy Paul. Uh, Paulie G. Illusionist picking up a late point. Category 14, which movie has the best misdirection? The Prestige. I love this one. He sends him away for a couple of years. Category 15, which movie had the best plot twist? Also, The Prestige. Category 16, which movie has the better stagehands that keep things discreet for our protagonist? The Illusionist. Category 17, which movie has the better reuniting with the manager and telling them not to see the backstage scene? The Prestige. Category 18, which movie has the best disguise worn by the main character... To fool the second main character. Shockingly, The Illusionist. Category 19. Which movie has the best drowning of the protagonist's love interest scene? The Prestige. I mean, we should tally it up. But I think I know where this one's going to go. I'm generally surprised how close most yeah. uh, episodes are. This one's not so close. How many categories did The Illusionist win? Seven. Really? Yeah. That's way higher than I thought it was going to be. How many categories did The Prestige win? Twelve. Wow. I think this has to be our highest score I think so it's far. Our, I think it's the biggest blowout so far. But even then, the point of this podcast is not to dump on, you know, films that are imperfect, but to highlight the things that we like about movies. You don't hold back, though. With 12 votes beating out seven votes, The Illusionist gets electrocuted by Tesla, and the prestige secures the win at the Hollywood versus Hollywood pod. What are your feelings about the result, Michael? So this is the end of the recording of our 10th our episode. And as you mentioned earlier in this recording, you know, you came to me eight, 10 months ago, maybe a year, and said, you know, I have an idea for a podcast, and I, I want to talk about Movies that are, are like each other, that come out around the same time. And I know that we had had a lot of discussions about the prestige before. So, you know, I feel like we've been working our way up to this. And it's really nice. It's really nice to be here for the 10th time. 
sitting across from my good friend uh, talking about movies that we like. And it was really, really great to revisit these films and The Prestige in particular. And this is a long one, so I feel like we really got a chance to talk about the many, many things that we like about these movies. I really, really love the movie The Prestige, so I would have been heartbroken. (laughs) This is probably the only time in this podcast that I've actually had a dog in the race. Yeah. So I'm, I'm happy that The Prestige was able to secure it also with a huge bargain. The powers of Ed Norton and Paul Giamatti could not secure it for The Illusionist. I mean, I, I sit here and I really try and put my thumb on the scale yeah. every week. Uh, <laughs> I hope everybody's enjoyed the 10 episodes that we've done so far. We're going to take a little bit of break before we get into the next chapter, uh, season two of this podcast. If you like our podcast, tell as many people as you can about it so we can come back and do this more. Michael, thank you for you know helping me produce this. I really appreciate that. Thank you for listening. This is HT with my co-host, Michael, only on the Hollywood versus Hollywood podcast. I was happy to be here. Have a nice day. Thank you for listening to the Hollywood versus Hollywood podcast. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. And connect with us on Instagram at Hollywood VS Pod.